tell you, next Sunday you're not going to want to miss. Um, I'm not preaching. Uh, a good friend of mine, Davinian and Valentine, is going to be preaching. And uh, we're going to continue in the series. And so the topic next week is, uh, is that they were devoted to the prayers. And I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss um, this sermon. Um, this guy is a very humble guy, but he's very passionate about the word of God, very passionate about the gospel, and very passionate about prayer. And, uh, and so you pack all that into a guy that's like 6'5", 200, I don't know, I uh, better not do that, probably, probably at least 250, just muscle, looks like he comes right off the NFL field. Um, he's going to pack all that passion into preaching the word to us next week, so you're going to want to be here for that. And, uh, and then the very next week we'll be on worship. Um, before I forget, too, this first Wednesday, I'll be talking more about that during the sermon, um, is going to be a real special first Wednesday. We're coming back from uh, the pilot trip first Wednesday last month to get some, a little bit of show and tell, but really more of what we're going to be going and doing. So those of you who are interested in knowing how the trip went, we're going to get some of that. But more of, here's the plan for next year, and our, um, right now, our, uh, our plan to get the gospel uh, to some folks who've never heard it. Um, so it's going to be really exciting. You want to be here for that. On top of that, our kids are going to be in the first Wednesday service presenting a song um, that has been written here at our church about going and telling, about missions. And so our kids are going to be coming in to the first Wednesday service, leading us in a song. And then Cam is going to, with the help of the kids' ministry team, be actually leading out the communion part of our service. So you don't want to miss this first Wednesday, um, 6.30, right here. All right. It's good to see you. Is it? Um, the, like, I know it probably feels like, when I do that, it probably feels like I'm finding my targets. And those of you who try to move and switch it up, I'm like, oh, there you are. Okay, I got you. No, like, there is something just like, like revitalizing, vitalizing about being with you. And like, I want to see you before we do this. Um, because I'm not preaching at you. I'm not even preaching to you. My hope is that through my voice and, and through the words that come out, that the gospel is preaching to us. And so I, I want to see you. I want to know who's here. Um, it encourages my soul to be here in this moment with you. And so you didn't ask, but that's why I do that. Um, the joke just tries to, it's just my attempt to kill the awkwardness. Anyway, so um, here's where we're going to be today in Acts 2. Going to be here for a while. Uh, verse 42, the things that this crew, uh, this early church was devoted to. Uh, let me just kind of explain to you, in case you're new to where we're at in the series, um, if you could just place yourself on the dusty dirt roads of Jerusalem um, a few days, a few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, and you're walking down a dusty dirt road, and you begin to hear people singing or talking really loud, and you were just to walk by the window of a gathering of the early church, what we see in Acts 2 42 through 47 is like you just stop for a second and maybe slide the window open and you, and you look into what they're doing, okay? So, um, so a couple of things are happening. One, uh, we are getting an image of who we're supposed to be, but two, we're kind of measuring who we are, right? If somebody were to walk by our church at one of our gatherings and hear something going on inside and they were to kind of just peek in, what would they see and would it look like this early church, so the sermon, the, the series title is Marks of a Disciple. What does it look like as an individual to be marked as one of Jesus' disciples? But you can't really have that conversation without talking about what we, how we as a corporate body are supposed to be marked as disciples. It's not one or the other. It's both at the same time. So there's the series we're in, and that beautiful little girl can cry anytime she wants in one of my sermons. Um, 
So, so it's not so much just about me as an individual, it's about us as a body at the same time, okay? And so where we're at right now is we're at this place in the scriptures where um, Luke is recording this and he's saying, this is what the early church was doing. They were devoted to, Acts 2.42, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, okay? They were devoted to the fellowship, and today we'll see they were devoted to the breaking of bread, and then next week, the prayers, Okay, so we're just looking in to see what they were doing, what they were devoted to. All right, so today we're going to be talking about the breaking of bread. Of bread. And uh, what I want to do is I'm going to give you just a brief intro from my own experience and my own misconceptions. We're going to take a look at what the church was doing, what communion really is, and then towards the end we're going to talk about the significance of it and why we do it and why we have a sense of reverence about it and what happens when we take communion. Okay, that's kind of our journey today. Um, but first of all, um, let me just share with you kind of my own experience. Maybe some of you can relate, okay? Um, I didn't really grow up in church. I grew up going to church two to three times a year, okay? Um, and, and so my grandparents were Methodists, belonged to the Methodist church. When I say, when I grew up going to church, I grew up as a kid going to the Methodist church at um, like Christmas Eve, Easter, maybe Mother's Day to make grandma happy, just a few key weekends out of the year. So that was my church experience. So my, my exposure to communion, this thing we call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper or the breaking of bread, uh, was through a Methodist lens. And so um, and that really shaped my view on communion in some significant ways. I don't know if you've been to a Methodist church or maybe a Lutheran church or Episcopal church, Presbyterian church, churches that celebrate the Lord's Supper more often. Uh, they, and they do it in a very formal fashion. Like, this is how it happened. We, I caught onto the routine after like a couple of times um, at a certain point of the service um, you, would be, uh, you would be kind of dismissed from your row in sequence. There were three sections. And so you would start maybe at the front. You're first, and you would come down and take communion. Then the next row, then the next row, and you go up. And then you work your way back down the section. Then you'd work your way back up the sesh, the, this other section over here. Uh, Tracy Burnett grew up in the same church I'm talking about, right? Isn't that how it happened? Okay. And so what you would see um, is this. Normally there was like a warning before it got to you so you knew what to do. Because there's not a whole lot of instructions and so you would be watching it coming to you, like the wave at the Rangers game in slow motion. Coming to you, but you would catch on, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go down and kneel and pray. Um, had this big wooden, long altar-looking thing with on each end had the water where they would sprinkle, and then in between a place to kneel and pray, and communion would be just kind of set out. And so you would watch people go, and, and so there was something very formal and reverent about it. I didn't necessarily understand what, it, what communion was, but I did know this, that there's supposed to be some sort of like reverence about what's taking place. Like at the, at, the, at the church we went to, there was always the lady with the big hat, you know, just dressed to the hilt. And there's just something very um, capturing about watching a, a lady just dressed to the hilt, kneeling in humility at, at, at an altar to take communion. That spoke to me. That told me something about communion. This is, this is a very important thing that's taking place. Now, that was my early childhood experience. I became a Christian, started going to the Baptist church where things were different. We took communion once a quarter. On a Sunday morning, we'd take communion once a quarter. It was a much more casual experience, okay? And typically, the preacher would preach that day on communion, so it was explained a little bit more. So I had this one sense of just high reverence, and I don't fully know what's going on, but I know I'm supposed to be reverent and respectful. Then on the other hand, it was more um, experiential and, and just more casual, and I kind of get it what the symbolism is, okay? So those two things shaped as a pastor, my perspective on communion and how I would lead a church in communion. And at times, there was a lot of tension there. 
And so those of you who've been around for a while, you know some first Wednesdays we come in, be very formal. We'd have the elders uh, literally you know, handing out the communion. Um, we would then the very next first Wednesday come in and it would just be up here at the front, kind of a free-for-all. You just come when you get ready. And so it was like this tension between very reverent, very formal, very unified, and then, hey, you just kind of come do this. And so those are the two experiences that kind of shape my perspective on, on communion. Now this year, um, the first eight months of the year, seven of those eight, we taught communion. Every time we got together. Uh, you, if you came, you heard from me more times than you probably cared to hear from me. You heard from Cam. Cam taught on communion. Brian Lamb, you heard Brian Lamb teach on communion. You heard Billy Warren, one of our elders, teach on communion. You heard Ken Forsyth. You heard all these people teaching on communion. So I get to November of 2012. I'm like, what else am I going to teach? And so, like, today I'm asking the question, God, what would be beneficial for us then as we see this to help us understand? So my goal is for us just to understand the significance the symbolism of communion, and then our perspective, how we participate in it as a local church. Those are my two hopes for you, okay? And so here's where we're going to start. Um, just a, a general understanding of what was going on. Communion, most often in the scripture, gets referred to as the breaking of bread. It, at some points, it's the Lord's Supper, um, but most often when communion is referred to, it's referred to as the breaking of of bread. Now here's the problem with that. The breaking of bread is also um, the idiom expression for sharing a meal. Okay, let me tell you what had, what had happened. Um, the, the church began to see this beautiful rich symbolism in this last night before the cross, Jesus takes communion. Then after his resurrection, we'll see, he does this with two more disciples. And so the early church is devoted to doing this. They were so devoted to it that they began doing it at every meal. They begin to integrate communion experience into every meal. And so it was literally began to be called the breaking of bread. You didn't really know if we were talking about eating a meal or the Lord's Supper. Most occasions we're doing both. So in this Acts 2, 42 through 47 passage, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And then later on, they were breaking bread in each other's homes with, with gladness. Like, what's going on here? Were they eating or were they taking communion? And what it, here's what would happen. It began to be a kind of an integrated thing. Now, you can see the beauty of that early on. Let's just stop at every meal and acknowledge the Lord Jesus. However, here's what happened. You, they begin to integrate communion into every meal, and then before you know it, every meal began to get integrated into every communion. And so what we know today is like potluck dinners and communion were really one. And so what we're going to start is in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is speaking into this integration and the problems that were arising because Every meal was called the breaking of bread. So 1 Corinthians 11, just look with me at uh, what was taking place. This is 1 Corinthians 11, and you're welcome to look on the screen. I encourage you to at least jot down addresses today. Um, maybe in your Bible you have a place, like I'll have places where I'll write down verses about salvation or verses about something. You may even want to do that, verses about communion. I'm going to try to cover kind of an overview. And, uh, and so it might be helpful for you to do that. So you can look at the screen, jot down the addresses, turn with me if you want. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul begins speaking in 17, verse 17. I love Paul and his not-so-subtle sarcasm. So verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. What a strategic way to say um, you're, you're not doing a very good job. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
Now, this is just not a subtle critique. This is Paul saying, your meetings have now become something that is actually for the worse. I'm not just giving you some advice on how to tweak it and make it better. They're not for the better. They're actually for the worse, and here's why. And he begins talking about what had happened with this syncretism or this integration of communion and meals. From the first place I hear that when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There's a not-so-subtle sarcasm. Like, it's true. Then he goes on to say, I know that there must be division among you uh, in order that those who are, genuine, who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he's, I, I get it that there's got to be some distinction, some sense of this is what we believe. And a person who says, well, I'm not sure if I believe that yet, that's the distinction of the believers in the church. Okay? But he's not talking about that. He's talking about division between believers. That's his problem. And here's, here's what led to the, to, to the division. Verse 20. When you come together, okay, for communion is going to be implied here. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So while he says you're coming together and you're trying to celebrate this communion thing, you're not even celebrating communion anymore. What you're doing has so changed from what it was originally supposed to be. It's not communion anymore. Here's why. For in eating, verse 21, each goes ahead with his own meal. So can you imagine, like, showing up for church, and, uh, and so we're going to celebrate communion. I get here first. I'm just going to go right on ahead. I'm not going to wait on you. And not only am I doing that, I'm going to have my fill in what's there. So in eating, each one goes ahead. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk, okay? So verse 22, what? I didn't say it louder. What? Like Paul's like, what are you thinking? Look at what you've done to the Lord's Supper. You've made it into a potluck meal. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Now, Paul's not getting onto them for eating. He's getting onto them for the integration of communion into meals to the point where the meals now become like the potluck dinner. So for them, they would say a blessing at the beginning of the potluck dinner, and that's what communion had become for them. Yeah, we're eating bread and we're breaking bread, that, you know, that cliche, um, but they had lost this sense and this reverence and awe of what communion is supposed to be. So we'll come back to it in a minute. He's going to switch to some specific instructions on what communion, like he redefines it for them. Just refreshes on it, boom, this is what communion is supposed to be. Look what you've made it. So in this, we see that it matters how we do it, Right? That it's not something we just casually integrate into what we do. It's something that's supposed to be set apart. And, and it's not just any meal. Okay? Not just any meal. So here's where, here's where we're going to take just a moment and kind of stop and pause on, on the New Testament. Go back to the Old Testament for, Testament for just a minute. So for these Christians, um, this Acts 2 group of folks, um, they have a lot of religious influence on the way they think about things and do things, okay? Some come from a, from a Greek mindset. Um, others come from different other Egyptians' mindsets. But primarily, the influence on these people was Jewish, okay? And so this institution of the communion was literally Jesus taking a Jewish meal and, and, and explaining it in such a way that they began to celebrate it differently now as Christians. 
So for us then, we, we look at what Jesus did. There was this full-blown Passover meal that had lamb. It had these bitter herbs, horseradish, salty water to symbolize tears, all these rich symbolisms in it. And it's not that Jesus says these things aren't important because most of them are pointing at him anyway. He sets them aside and he places this significant emphasis now on just two of them, which is the wine and the bread. Okay? So these Christians are taking this historic Jewish meal with all this rich symbolism pointed to Jesus, and now they are doing what he did in celebrating communion with bread and wine. Okay, so where does Passover come from? Okay, think about that. Some of you may know the answer. Just where does it come from? Think about it. If you know the answer, tell yourself the answer. Okay, so back in Exodus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, okay, the Jewish people who are going to come, who are going to start celebrating this meal, are actually in slavery. Okay, I've never been in slavery. Um, I've been in situations that I did, felt like I couldn't get out of, and I don't like that feeling. Like, I was one time I was eight, and the seatbelt got stuck in the back of my grandma's gray Thunderbird. We were two miles from the house, and I panicked. Like, I just remember flipping out. I was like having an epileptic seizure. I was so like I don't like being restrained. Okay. Now imagine this being your, like your everyday existence. Like sometimes literally they had those kind of shackles on, but they re- literally couldn't live their own lives. Think about this parents raising your children in this type of bondage. Okay? Now this is, the, this is what's going on in early Exodus. So in Exodus 6, God speaks a promise, which we'll look at in just a minute more specifically. I am going to deliver you from this. I'm going to deliver you from this. This is Exodus 6, 6 and 7 where we get this, uh, this outline of the four cups of the Passover meal. So then what happens is the plagues happen, okay? So God grabs their attention with these miraculous, just overwhelming, just really weird plagues displaying his power over everything. And in the end, you get the, the last plague, uh, the Passover, the death angel Passover plague, if you will, where um, the, the Israelite families slaughtered a lamb, Okay, you're starting to think about maybe Jesus on the cross. Yes, slaughtered a lamb, sprinkled the blood over the doorpost. The death angel passes by and spares their children, spares their their firstborn sons. So from this experience now, Pharaoh's freaking out. He's like, you guys get your stuff and get out of here. So the the Israelite nation is now set free. On this, the beginning of this promise is happening that God made to them. I'm going to set you free. Okay, so then they begin to, to acknowledge this this deliverance in this thing called the Passover meal every year. It's where it comes from. Different elements, would, they would butcher the lamb, right, because of the lamb, they would remember all that, but they'd also think about the future and what God had fully promised them. They would celebrate this Passover meal. Now, in the Passover meal, there were, like I said, all these elements, there were specifically four cups, and there were three pieces of matzah bread. So let's just talk about that. Those are the things that Jesus focuses in on, right, in the Passover meal. So let's just step back then and go, well, what's significant about these four cups and these three pieces of bread? I want to go to Exodus 6 real quick because this is where the promise is made and where the meaning for each cup comes from. Okay? So God speaks into their slavery and makes a promise starting in verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am their Lord. And here comes the first part of the promise. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God speaks a promise. This is what I'm going to do. So this was the symbolism of the first cup in the Passover. Where they would drink a cup, and they would call it the cup of like uh, either the cup of the promise, the cup of the blessing, or the cup of sanctification. And they would they would recite and remember 
this promise God made. It was the first cup. Symbolizes that first thing God said. So in the Passover meal, first cup, they were thinking this. Second cup, here it comes. So I'll bring you out from the burdens, and there's a word, and, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. So the second cup in the meal was, a, was a, called the cup of deliverance. And anytime they would take the second cup, they would remember, God promised to deliver us from slavery. Keep reading. There's a third cup, the end of verse 6. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And they would t- call this third cup the cup of redemption. They would remember exactly what God said just then. So as they're drinking these cups throughout the Passover meal, they're remembering this promise God made. The fourth one is this, and it's a very significant part of it. Verse 7. Now, now what God's saying is beginning to talk to the future. Okay? He says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God and then he refers back to this promise, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so the fourth cup was called the cup of restoration. You see, they started celebrating this meal. Um, they had been set free from Pharaoh, but where were they living? In a desert. Like this promise wasn't fully realized. And so that fourth cup that they would drink was the cup of restoration where they would remind each other, God's not finished yet. Like even when they get to the promised land, Things are just not right, and they're still longing for a final restoration, which is why they began to, in turn, look for a final rescuer, the Messiah King. And so every year they would celebrate this Passover meal, and these four cups would come up, and they would remember, oh yeah, God's going to deliver us from this burden. Yes, he did that. Oh yeah, right, the the cup of deliverance, God's going to deliver us from Pharaoh. Oh yeah, cup of the redemption, God's going to redeem us. But, oh, that fourth cup was the cup looking to the future, the final restoration. Now, something significant would happen, too, with the bread. Three pieces of bread, and they would keep them in one folded piece of linen, a white, pure piece of linen. This beautiful symbolism of Trinity, really, the three in one. And so early on in the meal, what the Father would do, they would start with the cup of the blessing, the first cup of the blessing or sanctification, start the whole thing. Boom. The oldest um, child or the youngest child, uh, the oldest male child is actually what it was, would ask a question. So the father would say, here's the cup of the blessing. And then the child would say, what is different about this night from any other night? And so in response to that question, the dad would begin explaining the events of the Passover from early in Exodus all the way through the deliverance and all the promises God had made. Okay, So he would begin doing that. Now, At the end of the story then, the father would take the second cup symbolizing the story's done and the meal's about to begin. So this is the place where the kids would get super, super excited, right? Finally, (laughs) dad's done preaching. Let's get our grub on, let's eat. So the second cup, the kids begin to get excited. And so what the dad would do with the bread is really, really significant. He would take the bread out, get ready for the meal, but he would take one piece of the bread, slide it back in the cloth, fold it up, and he would break it And then he would take it and he would bury it or hide it somewhere in the house. And then they would come back and they would do the whole meal. You see where this is going. Then at the end of the meal, um, they would take the third cup uh, and he would say to the kids, go find it. And so all the kids would get excited. They would run around the house looking, 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 find the bread. And the one would come back and bring it back to dad. And dad would unfold the bread. This buried, now resurrected piece of the Trinity. 
Now, we're going to see why Jesus was focusing in then on the wine and the bread. Not that the other elements weren't important, but that these two things would now be the part of the Passover meal that we retain and we emphasize as his church. They would then end the meal by singing the Hallel, which is Psalms 115, 116, 117, 118. I'll look at a couple verses from each in just a minute, and you'll see how they were singing about the coming of Jesus at the end of every Passover meal. And then the last thing that they would do is drink the fourth cup of the coming restoration. Now, let's look for just a second at Mark chapter 14. This is Mark's account. Of what happened. So here's your context. This is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. It's also the Passover. And so Jesus tells his disciples, hey, go get a place ready for us to celebrate the Passover. And in their mind, they're expecting this to be like every other Passover. Okay? So they, they find a place, they set it up, he comes in. Now this is the night that Jesus gets arrested. After the Passover meal, they sing their songs like they did and went out. They went to the garden. This is where Jesus prays, sweats drops of blood, and uh, his disciples fall asleep. Do you remember what he asked his father? God, if it's possible, would you take this cup from me, this cup of redemption? But nevertheless, not what I will, what you will be done. Okay, this out in the garden just moments after this. Okay, this is where Jesus is arrested. He's taken to this really um, kind of a backwoods mock trial um, early on in the morning and then later on goes to a real trial and then they begin to beat him and scourge him and pull out his beard and spit on him and punch him and strip him naked and humiliate him and then they nail him to a cross where he dies for you. Okay? This is the night before all that. And he sits down on the Passover with his disciples and they, they're having this meal and then when he gets to the third cup, the cup of redemption, this is where we find these significant words from Jesus. So in, in um, Mark chapter 14, verse 22 and as they were eating, so what's, where are they at in the meal? They're already towards the end of the eating part. They're getting ready for that third cup. As they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, okay, which was not odd for the Passover meal. However, look at what he does. He gives it to them, and he says, take, this is my body. Now think about it for just a minute. For hundreds of years, the oldest male child has been asking this question, what is different about this night from any other night? And it's almost as if that, song, uh, that question has just rung out with no answer year after year after year, and Jesus is finally answering that question. I'll tell you what's different about this night from any other night. And so he says, as he breaks the bread, and he gives it to them, he says, take, now think about the significance of this. Take, this is my body. This piece of bread that you've been breaking and burying and hiding and then having the kids go find it and resurrect it, that's my body. Verse 23, he took the cup, which is the cup of redemption, the third cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, what? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, verse 25 is so significant. I'll be honest, until probably early this year when I was studying for um, teaching on communion, I don't know if you remember, 
back towards Easter, we actually did a whole Sunday where we set up a, a Passover meal over on this side and went through all the elements and their symbolism. When I was studying for that, I learned something beautiful from the word of God about this verse. So verse 25 says, okay, so they've drank the third cup. All they have left is to sing the Hallel, take the fourth cup, and they're done. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Guys, I'm not drinking the fourth cup with you tonight. The cup of final restoration, I'm not drinking it with you tonight. Until when? Until my kingdom comes. Now, I don't know if when you take communion, it probably doesn't matter what church you take it at, there's always this sense of like, the cups are like little bitty, right? Like it's like they belong in a little kid's play set. They're little bitty. You take a drink, you're like, like, I could take a little bit more of that. I just barely even wet my whistle. I don't even feel like I took a full drink, okay? Now, I say all that in humor. However, there's a part of taking communion together as a church that at the end, you feel like I could have taken a little bit more. You begin to see why Paul was jumping all over their case about eating too much and drinking too much. There's supposed to be a sense of this meal isn't finished yet. Okay, I want you to think of that next time you take communion. It's just a little piece of bread, a little piece of juice, a sense of I could have eaten a little more, I could have drank. There's supposed to be a sense of I need a little more. And so what Jesus says to them is this, guys, we're not drinking the fourth cup tonight. Matter of fact, I'm not gonna drink of the vine again until when? Until my kingdom comes and final restoration takes place. So here's what that means to us. This is why we as a church, we take one cup. It's the cup of redemption. We are still waiting for the opportunity to take that final cup with Jesus in eternity. There should be a sense when you take communion, this isn't quite enough. And there should be a sense of longing in our hearts. I can't wait to take the fourth cup with him in eternity. At this beautiful wedding ceremony where God's son has prepared himself and the bride has prepared herself, us, the church, and she enters into this ceremony and then we shall drink the fourth cup together. That's beautiful what he does. So they sing the songs. Look at what verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they head out to the the Mount of Olives where the garden is and where he's arrested and all that. Before they go out, they sing the Hallel, which is four psalms, 115 through 118. We're not going to do it all together today. But they would sing it. Just a few excerpts of some of the things that they would sing. Okay? This is at the end of Passover, Right before the fourth cup, what they were looking forward to, um, they would sing. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of, now it begins and ends with the same phrase, so this is incredibly important, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now that is the proclamation of a people who are living in faith that God is going to come back and rescue. You are steadfast. You made us a promise. We, don't, we haven't seen it all yet, but you are steadfast and your love endures forever. This is the prayer and the praise of a people who trust God while they're in the desert, right, that he is going to fulfill everything he promised in Exodus 6. And so they were singing about this beautiful rescue that Jesus would make on the cross, and so look, if you look at Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2, 
I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my plea for mercy. And think about that as a parent. You're living in slavery, and every night you're praying, God, deliver us. But who are you praying that for most of all? I mean, if not me, at least for my children, deliver us. And so they would sing this song and say, God has heard my cry for help. He's heard my cry for mercy. Verse 2, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Verse 13, look at this. This is what they would sing. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call in the name of the Lord. So even in the songs they were singing, they were emphasizing this third cup of redemption and salvation. The next psalm, this, that's already two psalms, Psalm 117, just one and two. Praise the Lord, all nations. It's funny. Jesus, what did he say? Go make disciples of all nations. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us and his faithfulness and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So this theme is just stitched together with God is not, he's not slow to keep his promises like we measure slowness. He's still there. He's still steadfast. He's still faithful. Well, I would say that to you, Christ follower. Listen, he's not on your timetable. Okay, he's not. Thankfully so, he's on his. That goes for your life, your career, children, all those things. But that goes for all eternity. We are his bride gathering right now today. And, 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 and he's not slow to keep his promises. We're still longing for him to keep his promises. And while we wait, we say, right, we say he's faithful and his love endures forever. Psalm uh, 118, just a few verses from here. This will be the end of the Hallel. Verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Verse 5, out of my distress I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free should be the testimony of every Christian. Every Christian, right? Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. He answered me and set me free. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through and give thanks to the Lord. What what does Jesus say in the Gospel of John? I am the gate, and I am the way to the Father. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And they were singing this Hundreds of years before John ever captured Jesus saying that. That Jesus would be our gate to righteousness. Verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall enter through it. 21. I thank you that you have answered me and, I have, and have become my salvation. 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Sound familiar? Yeah. See, they're singing these songs about Jesus at the end of their Passover meal long before Jesus ever steps onto earth. And then, of course, it ends in verse 29. We give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so at the, on that night, Jesus says, I'll tell you what's different about this night from any other night. Everything you've been promised from God, everything that you've celebrated in eating, everything you've sung about, since, since the exodus is about to be fulfilled, this cup right here, this third cup of redemption is my blood that will be poured out for you. They sing these, and then they go out, pray, 
He's arrested and his blood begins to be poured out. So now we go to the New Testament and we ask the question about how is the church supposed to be celebrating this thing? Right? There's supposed to be an emphasis on the bread and the wine. There's a reason why we don't do the whole meal. It's not that those things aren't beautiful. The lamb, right, the butchered lamb, that's a beautiful part of the meal. The salt water, they would taste, they would dip their, uh, like their parsley or whatever it was in the salt water and remember the tears from when they were in slavery, a beautiful symbolism. But Jesus pulls it all in and says, here's what I want you to do as my church. I want you to take these two things, the bread and the wine, and I want you to carry these now forward as my church. So now we get into the New Testament, and the church is devoted to doing that. And, and I don't think that in, first, or in, in Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, um, the, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. I don't think they're talking, he's talking about an everyday common meal. I think he's talking about this beautiful thing that the Lord has, has, has constituted, has established for the church. Now, just some insight to help you. If we didn't get instructions from Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the references to the communion would primarily be um, the breaking of bread. So without Paul interjecting some things about the cup, we would be left with this major emphasis on the breaking of bread. And so that's why they called it that, the breaking of bread. But it, was not ex- it didn't exclude the cup of redemption, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians. Let's go there, 10, and then in 11. I want you to see some beautiful things now about the significance of what we do when we take it. Because here's the question. Okay? Regardless of what church background you have, what your experience in communion is, there are some questions. Like, how frequently should we be taking communion? What manner... Should we be, in what manner should we be taking communion? Right? Which is the way you should do it? Um, what I don't want to say is that we have it down here at Solid Rock. What I want to explain to you is here's why we do it the way we do it. There, there, you could do it more frequently, less frequently. Okay? You could do it more formally or less formally. But I'm going to look at just some specific instructions from Paul that govern us and guide us as a church to our approach on communion. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 14, I read this last week because it has the word koinonia in it. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, free from idolatry, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Verse 16. Here's where he says it. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. So, so we know we're supposed to be doing something with the cup in communion, right? Just because they caught the breaking of bread doesn't mean we're not supposed to include the cup. He says it here. Don't you know that when you take that cup, you're participating in something? So let's talk about that for just a What are you participating in? We, we talked about it briefly last week. And so on the surface, you have this idea um, that since Jesus laid his life down for us, then he's now calling us to lay on his, our lives Right to follow him, so there's that idea, the participation. We're participating in the cross. He laid his life down, so we're called to do what? To deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily, lay our lives down, and follow him. Ephesians uh, five instructions to husbands, just like Christ laid his life down and gave himself up for the church. You lay your life down, husbands, and give yourself up for your wives. There's that idea there, but there's there's a second part of it in that word participation that we must see. Like, what we do in celebrating communion is not simply a ritual. 
It's actually an experience of something. Okay? You know, the difference is, a ritual you do over and over and over and over and over again to remind you of an experience. But it's not just a ritual. It is an experience. You're participating in something. Now, the two ends of the spectrum, if you get too far out um, on, on this idea, then, then, all, then all of a sudden the bread and the juice become the literal body of Jesus. When you put them in your mouth, like it transforms sub, transubstantiation into your... And so it's like you're experiencing the body of Christ literally. Okay? We don't land there as a church. That's one far extreme. The other extreme is that it's all symbolic and there's no experience at all. But this word participation for me, what it says is this, that when I'm taking communion... First of all, as an individual, I'm saying something. Right now at this moment, I am participating in your grace. And that's incredibly important. Your experience of grace is not a past tense event. It was accomplished in a past tense event, but it is an ongoing experience. When you take communion, at that moment, you are participating. You're you're symbolizing right now at this moment, God's grace is washing over me right now. And you're participating in that. Now now think about that. Like when next time you take communion, it's why we say, let's stop for a minute. Let's maybe acknowledge sin. Not because God doesn't know what your sin is, but when you acknowledge sin right before you take communion, it gives you a fresh reminder of that grace that at that moment is taking place in your life. It doesn't take place because you're taking communion. You're taking communion to symbolize this is what's already taking place at this moment. Because we're so easy to forget, aren't we? As we get out in the world, Jesus' grace is washing over us. Like it's like this cascading waterfall that never ends. And so this participation for me is beautiful and rich. However, it also bears as we'll see with the the bread, something for us as a body to experience together. So he goes on to say uh, this. So you participate in the blood of Christ. Um, There's something about that that's supposed to kind of freak you out, by the way. Um, Like when you take communion, if it ever kind of like catches your attention, you're like, whoa, blood. Like it's supposed to. And that wasn't new with Jesus. They had been drinking those four cups for hundreds of years symbolizing blood. So every time you take it, there's supposed to be a sense of a wake-up call. Well, this is a big deal, right? And, and so don't ever lose sight that this wine resembles the blood of Christ. Now, the bread. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, here's the trouble with reading Paul. He uses the body as a metaphor, especially in this letter, to symbolize us. So when we hear that, we're thinking Jesus' body, right, was broken on the, you know, for us on the cross. He's actually talking about us as a corporate body now. That in, as we take the bread, we're symbolizing, we're participating in something now as a collective body. Look at what he says. The bread that we break, is, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So here's what we learn. So we're, we're individually understanding, we're participating in the grace God has given us, we're taking communion, fresh and new, but we're also saying something, we're experiencing something as a body as we take that bread together. We're saying we are participating in the grace of God right now in this moment. And you can't separate the two. Like John said last week, if you have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with one another. If you don't have fellowship with one another, you probably don't have fellowship with God, because 
both were accomplished simultaneously at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He tore down the wall between you and God, and he tore down the wall between you and each other. Both happened. But we should think of that as we take communion. We're, we're acknowledging our individual reception of grace that we've been brought into right relationship with God, but then we, right, when we take the body, we should be looking horizontally at each other. And so no matter how we choose to do it, whether it's everybody come down front and kneel, or everybody get the elements in your hand, let's take it at the most exact same moment. There needs to be a sense of unity and unison as we take these elements because we're participating in something when we take communion together. It's not wrong to go and take communion by yourself. However, the fullness of what it means can't be taken by yourself. It was meant to be taken as a collective corporate body. If you go back just the next chapter, this is where we'll end. Um, This is the rest of 11. So he's criticized them and said, you're doing it wrong. It's for worse. It's not for better. In chapter 11, we get our specific instructions as a church. In verse 23, just read these last few verses and we'll be done. Paul says in chapter 11, 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Anytime you hear Paul use that phrase, he's about to give you something real detailed and specific. 1 Corinthians 15, he does that. Like he's saying, I'm only, what I'm about to say is no more, no less than what I was told by Jesus. So this is what he's doing. You're doing communion wrong. Now let me give you exactly what I received. No commentary. So here's what he says. Verse 23. For I received the Lord, but I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed... He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is Paul saying, this is how you do communion. Well, he didn't tell us about where to put it in the room, did he? He, he, he kind of left some of that up in the air. However, he said, but at least do it this way. At least do it this way. And verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you're supposed to do both, look at this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're still waiting on that fourth cup. And as we take that cup of redemption together as a church family, we're proclaiming over and over again the gospel We're proclaiming over and over again, we're waiting on his return. Now, this proclamation, if we're not cautious, all of a sudden we'll slide into evangelism. Okay? This is the way I thought about the gospel up until about five, six years ago. I heard the gospel, I heard evangelism, I checked that box off and went, I've already received Jesus and I slid it aside and I tuned out for whatever the preacher had to say. And, and a lot of it had to do with the way it was tagged onto the end of the sermon. And if you experienced that, it's like teaching on stewardship and money and all this kind of stuff. And then the last two minutes, oh, by the way, if you're not a Christian, let me tell you the gospel. And I would check out and go, oh, it's not for me. What Paul is saying to us is this. We need to have the gospel proclaimed to us every time we get together. Two reasons. One, we're prone to wonder. We're prone to complacency. We're prone to forget the majestic awe of what Jesus did on the cross, right? 
We're, we're prone to fatigue. We're prone to, I've heard that before. We're prone to, I've already given my life to Jesus. I don't need to listen for the next few minutes. So Paul's saying, every time you take communion, you, you can't check out because you're doing it. It's a beautiful, fresh washing over of the gospel to you. We need to have the gospel preached to us over and over and over again. Reason number one, we become complacent to it the moment we walk out of the church. We do. We begin to become complacent. And then we need that beautiful reminder to wake us up. Number two is this. Your spiritual growth is fertilized by the preaching of the gospel to you again and again and again. That checking the box and stepping back when somebody's talking about the gospel, right? The believer should press in and go, I know this story, and because I know it well, I want to hear it again. I need to hear it again. Like, this is what drives me to be a better husband. Not a, not a bunch of psychological babble. There's good, bad advice out there. Here's what drives me to be the husband I'm supposed to be to my wife, the gospel. And the more it's preached to me, the more often it's preached to me. Like, when I get together with accountability partners, I say, I'm struggling in my marriage. Jason Lewis and I do this often. I've just been that lousy husband. You know what I need to hear? I need him to preach the gospel over me. I need to be woken up by the, the blood. I need to be once again rekindled and refreshed in this majestic, amazing, sacrificial work Jesus did on the cross for me. And in that, I find deeper and deeper every time. My knowledge expands more and more every time. My, my soul inside is fed by hearing the gospel. It's Martin Luther's famous for this person gave him a bunch of criticism at the end of one of his church services. This is Reformation. This is way back in the day, several hundred years ago. Uh, why do you preach the gospel to us every week? And his response, this is not verbatim, not quote, but basically was this, until you look like a people who believe the gospel, I'm gonna preach the gospel to you every week. And here's what he's literally saying. The gospel's transforming us every week. We're not done yet. We're still on this cup of redemption. We're longing for the final cup. We're longing for that final restoration, the consummation of all things when the bridegroom comes to take his bride. But for now, we're still on cup number three, preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again. Now here's the second part that's beautiful. For those who aren't saved, they get to hear the gospel when we take communion. Um, parents with kids, um, I'm not gonna tell you what to do in this situation. We, we have to wrestle through this. Like, like our kids aren't professed as believers yet, so what do we do? If Hudson's with us, we don't let him take communion. But we don't approach it as a situation where we get to do this, you don't. We take that opportunity to teach him and to proclaim the gospel to him. We say, this is why mommy and daddy do this. We, we, we take this for these reasons and we teach the gospel to him. Where he's longing for that day on the inside. Just like when he sees a baptism. You know, your kids go home, I want to be baptized. Well, why do you be baptized? Because it looked cool. But there's a longing that begins to build. Right? I want to be baptized. And then they begin to get it and go, oh. And they begin to realize, oh, this is about Jesus. The same thing's true with communion. Parents, I say that to you. It's a beautiful opportunity to teach your kids the gospel. And you choose what words you want to use and decide what age to talk about the blood and, you know, the sacrifice. It's up to you. Okay? But that's what we do. It's a beautiful proclamation of the gospel to ourselves. A beautiful proclamation of the gospel everywhere else. Now, let's end. I'm going to end with a narrative. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I may read it. I don't know. We'll see how much time we have. Um, Jesus has transferred the Passover, transitioned it to communion. He goes out to the garden, gets arrested. They put him on trial. They beat him. All that we talked about. Um, he, he, he dies on the cross for you. They put him in a grave as a dead man. He raises on the third day. Okay? 
something amazing happens on the resurrection. Well, a lot of things happen. <laughs> uh, Jesus came back to life, <laughs> right? How do you get more? But the people's response to that, it, it, over, it just blows me away. And there's a story from Luke 24 of these two disciples on their way to Emmaus. They know this story. Where Jesus is a resurrected Jesus comes and walks with them for a minute. And it says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so he asked the question, guys, what are you, what are you talking about? And it says that they stopped walking, their faces looked down, they were downcast, and, and, and they asked Jesus this very ironic question, sir, are you just a visitor here in Jerusalem? And he's like, what are you talking about, visitor? What are you? And so they began to say, well, this Jesus, who was a mighty man of God, this prophet, we, we, were, look, we were hoping that he was gonna be the one. And, and just a few days ago, uh, they, he was arrested and killed. And if that's not enough, right, it's been three days, which to them, that's, in their mindset, that's when death was final on the third day. It's been three days. And if that's not enough, our ladies are spreading these stories around that they went to the tomb and they didn't see his body there. And now they're saying that these angels spoke to them that he's resurrected. And if that's not enough, two of our own disciples went there themselves. You know who he's talking about, right? Peter and John. If you read this in the Gospel of John, they take off running, and John outruns Peter because Peter's slow. That's what it says in the Gospel. So he says, even two of our own went, and they saw it, and now they're reporting the same thing. And so Jesus responds. I just want to read this response to you and see what happens. This is in Luke 24. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, what are you going to say? I guess you're right. That is what the prophet said. So then, verse 27, Jesus begins to teach them from the scriptures about everything that took place. Beginning with Moses, all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. 28, so they drew near to a village. Let me give you the short of this. They draw near to a village. It's late at night. Jesus pretends like he's going to keep going. It says that. And they're like, sir, it's almost night. Stay with us. Okay, there's a reason why they're wanting him to stay. They're like, hey, it's dark. Don't go and stay with us. And so he stays. But look at verse 30. When he was at, uh, when he sat or when he was at table with them, look at what he does. He took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. This is resurrection day. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Just through the, the breaking of bread, of communion, their eyes were open and unveiled to see Jesus. And then when they go back and report it, just as they found, verse 34, they go running back to the 11. Verse 34, they said, look what they say, the Lord is risen indeed. Because before this, it was all rumors to them. And they come back to the 11 and say, the Lord has risen indeed. You see the power of the message that comes through communion? Jesus himself did this on resurrection day with two disciples to reveal himself to them. Just teaching from the scriptures, they didn't see it. And then they go on to say, um, the Lord has risen indeed and appeared to Simon, verse 38. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the what? The breaking of bread, not in all the other stuff. And they go on to say, 
was not our hearts burning with, um, uh, inside of us while we were walking with him? Yet we didn't get who he was until communion. What I want us to see as a church, how amazingly, profoundly, um, I can't use big enough adjectives to describe the role of communion in our services. Okay? I'm not telling you that I know the frequency of every week or once a month or once a quarter. All I can tell you is this. We, we feel like that once a quarter is not enough. We do. We also feel that if we do it every week, that we can very easily begin to integrate that into something else, or it just becomes way too common and ritualistic. So that's why we've landed. Once a month, we take community together. A few Sundays in addition to that, we'll also do it in here. We did it last spring, and we'll do it again. Okay, so that's why we land there. Okay? It's why we, we, we encourage you to be here to take communion with us as a body. Um, we, we want to experience all. We want to participate in all that it is. So First Wednesday's coming up, right? I mean, what a better spiel to roll into. Hey, I'm better see you here on First Wednesday. Seriously. Like, First Wednesday is not about this extra service we do for the super spiritual. This is our opportunity once a month at least to come together as the family, the body, If both services came together on first Wednesday, we wouldn't have enough room. Oh, how I long for that on a first Wednesday. It's your one opportunity to be here with the whole body. And that's when we take communion together on first Wednesdays. To set it apart and say, this is is special, this is beautiful. So this first Wednesday, I want you to come. I want you to come with this mindset. This is what you're doing. As Cameron and and the kids ministry team Lead us in taking communion. I want us to have all this in mind of what's going on. I want to pray together and then we'll ask the worship team to come back up. Just take a moment. Maybe today is you know, a day to respond more internally than externally. And here's what I mean by that. You may not want to stand and sing for a few minutes, and that's fine. Um, Some of you may just want to stay where you're at and just continue praying while we sing. That's perfectly fine. You're welcome to move around the room and um, come up to the front and kneel and maybe kneel where you're at or stand and sing. All those things are appropriate and okay. As long as our external responses are indicative of our internal responses. Today is a day to measure what's inside of your heart Maybe you would just confess, you know what, I've, I've just really had a bad attitude towards communion. Or I've just had a, a misconception about what it means. And, and maybe today you would just be real honest before the Lord Jesus himself and say, listen, I'm sorry for being uh, indignant. I'm sorry for being lethargic. I'm sorry for my complacency towards communion. But right now, refresh my heart for your grace. Maybe that would be your, your prayer this morning.